recording myself because um, without objection, I post under password protection on ULEARN the class lectures so that you can go back and review 30 seconds or five minutes of it, something that we're clear about. Um, it's not designed to get you not to come to class. Uh, I'm sure you'll get more out of each class if you listen in class at least once and then review it if necessary. I would say most students don't use it very often, but it, it can be helpful, particularly for something you want to go over again on class materials. You won't be tested on anything we don't discuss in class. Is my goal to, to, to cover everything on the syllabus, but I know I could tell you right offhand that's impossible. And I cover less if we have more class discussions, but that's a good thing. So in a sense, um, you're safe if you come to class because you won't be tested on anything that we, we discuss. But if you want an A, you better read the <coughs> materials that go with the class discussions just because you'll understand it better. Plus, you'll learn more and you'll get more out of it. Most students at Georgia State don't do the reading most of the time. Um, that's my impression. I may be wrong. Please prove me wrong. Um, most students do some of the reading some of the time. Uh, very few do all the reading all the time. But in this class, uh, I'm hoping that you will do most of the reading most of the time. Not all of the reading all the time. That's not possible. And in particular, the reading in the binder on Best Way, which you'll see when you get your copy of the syllabus, for those of you, most of you who haven't gotten it yet. Um, it's a specialized topic, which will comprise something like a third to 40% of our class time. 60 to 2 thirds percent of our class time will be from our uh, course textbook, which I chose is the Global Issues Book of the Congressional Quarterly Researcher, which I like better than the one that most Global Issues classes use because it's written um, more comprehensively, more thoroughly. Uh, and interviews many more people. The, the, the standard book tends to have a couple of academics and their take on the selected global issues. It's Congressional Quarterly, which is a heck, great, thank you so much, uh, does a much more thorough analysis of each of the, thank you so much, of the, of the 16 topics uh, that will comprise 16 of our classes. Just sort of hand these out. The um, topics in the Global Issues book are more or less, <coughs> these are extras here if we don't have enough. Um, the 16 are, you know, some one group's list of 16 Global Issues. They, you would pick different issues, no doubt, if you picked the 16. Um, they're ones that are discussed in the mass media from time to time particularly countries like Iran and Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, are, have dominated the discussions. Here you go, late, uh, ma'am. Pardon me. Uh, dominated the discussions of American foreign policy, but global issues and problems should not be seen just from an American perspective. Questions like world hunger, world poverty, uh, climate change, concern 
all six billion or so of the world's population. Um, but you know, there is a bias on the selection towards issues that face Americans. That's not to say that uh, we should take the American perspective on every issue. We're trying to take a perspective uh, that both teaches you how to analyze, and by analyze, we mean moving from description to looking at cause and effect. We want to know what causes these problems. Why have they proven difficult? Why are there disagreements as to the nature of the problems and the nature of the solutions? And to add to fun and, and clarification, we'll have debates, at least during those 16 class sessions from the Global Issues textbooks. And I'll ask a couple of students to take each side. I always like it better when you pick the side you don't agree with, just because I think it forces you to think like the opposite of how you normally think. But we'll see how that goes. Um, and there are certain cause and effect relationships which are not based on what values you have or what your ideology of. They tend to be more or less factual. That's not to say that they're not value implications from every factual question, but you know, there are certain questions that most people routinely would consider to be uh, factual, just you know, how many people are starving, how many people are getting killed. But the problem is everyone disagrees on the facts. Some people say X number of people are being killed. Somebody else might say six times X number of people are killed. One person might say mostly soldiers are being killed. Another person might say mostly civilians are being killed. Some people will say that they were intentionally, civilians were intentionally killed. Other people will say it was accidental collateral damage as a result of combat that was primarily focused on soldiers and so on. So in many ways, what I want you to learn in doing critical analysis is how do people perceive the facts differently? And to what extent can the facts be understood objectively, um, both because it's in the nature of inquiry, but also solutions need to achieve a high degree of consensus among adversaries in order to get people on the same page or at least they need to agree on not to disagree for the time being and see what they can agree on. Um, I think if you were to take this course 20 years from now, and, and CQ researcher published a book, probably half to two-thirds of the chapters would have similar names. In other words, these are intractable problems without obvious solutions. They are dilemmas because either we lack the agreement on how to go about them, or because we don't understand what the problem is, or we see their competing values and competing interests pertaining to the creation and the possible solution to these problems. And some of the remaining chapters that might not be included in the tables and contents 20 years from now may still be big problems, but they may not be considered as topical. Uh, certainly every chapter, if it were to be repeated 20 years from now, would be organized quite differently just because the world is in flux. Um, and you know, assuming we don't have world suicide, um, you know, we'll find that some problems will be a whole lot less severe and some problems will be even worse than we anticipated. And on both scores, assuming again we don't blow each other up, uh, I think that's almost a near certainty. And that's because one of the dilemmas is the fact that we don't really understand what's going on now or the recent past or the long-term past. 
Uh, and if we can't understand what we've already experienced or could know about, we can hardly know what exactly is going to happen in the future when we don't know exactly what are going to be factors at play in the future. But still, we have to plan for the future, so we have to see, think if we can understand the past in order to say what is likely to continue and what's likely to continue differently and what's likely to be unpredictable and what we can't explain at all. If you pick any chapter in the book or any problem you can think about uh, in your personal lives or in facing society, could be you know, a family problem or it could be the future of the economy uh, in light of the mortgage crises and so forth, you will almost always get disagreement among intelligent people of good faith trying to understand the problem. And you'll get more disagreements on top of that among people who maybe are biased or are not of such good faith. And that's because we're human beings, we're imperfect, we have interests, we have values, we have perceptions, and we have misperceptions. And the facts can't be known in many cases. It's also possible we may understand the world completely differently 20 years from now or 100 years from now than we understand it because of major scientific advances or major catastrophic or cataclysmic events or what have you. What seems really important today, like climate change, could be a whole lot less important 20 years from now or it could be the exact opposite. It could be even worse than we expected. We know that we don't really have 100% certainty. We know what the scientific consensus is, but there's a very large group of well-funded researchers who don't think it's as nearly as bad as we say, and they think that the problem is natural fluctuation in um, non-human causes, uh, non-human causes of climate change. It, it's pretty much agreed that the Earth is getting warmer. We're not so sure how long that trend is trending. We don't know whether this is a natural, an unnatural, or a combination of the factors. So as you hear me describing, I haven't talked about much about specific problems. I just use climate change as an example. But I, I do want you to start trying to think like I just talked about the problems. Like, can we analyze a problem between factual and non-factual characteristics, non-factual being values, preferences, and so forth, maybe even interests. Secondly, can we understand these problems in terms of what we know and how we know it and what we don't know? Third, can we predict based on the past at all? Uh, if things are going to change over time, are we going to be able to have a better and clearer idea as to why it's changing over time? And finally, uh, why is it that these dilemmas don't seem to have obvious solutions uh, to the problems, even though global issues textbooks have been published now for a good few decades, and people know that a lot of these problems have very, very potentially serious consequences for the future. So that's the textbook part of the course. We also have, um, in addition to the books that you can, the textbook that you can buy at any of the three bookstores, uh, a, a more in-depth discussion of one region of the world, Europe, and how they've looked at their regional problems through the creation of institutions that have been proven very successful in dealing with a number of their problems, uh, and in some ways offer an alternative to Asia, Africa, and Latin America, and to some extent North America, 
uh, to addressing their regional problems. Because Europe had as much war as just in about any region in the world. You could call the, these white savages, you know, always making war against each other, if you like, uh, in, in the sense uh, that Europe had the bloodiest wars known in history. The Thirty Years' War four centuries ago killed a third of Germans. World War I and World War II killed 19 million and 50 million just of Europeans alone. And uh, after World War II, they created institutions like the Council of Europe and what's become known as the European Union to deal with legislative, executive, and judicial solutions. Sir, here's the syllabus. Uh, to approaching these problems and institutions that may not be too familiar with you uh, that will become familiar to you, like courts, like the Euro Court of Justice of the European Union or the European Court of Human Rights, the Common Market or the European Union for Free Trade, um, and other institutions will become quite familiar to you. And we'll look at how Africa now has a Court of Human and People's Rights, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, the New Asian Commission on Human Rights, and other institutions are being adopted to try to deal with some of these same problems the way Europe has adopted, because most countries of the world don't have a two-century-old-plus system of federalism that we created in 1789 in our second constitution in the United States of America here. So those readings, which are more difficult and which I don't expect you to be able to finish, but I do want you to try to read a good third to a half of the pages, unless you have time to read more, uh, that reader of articles is at the Best Way Copy Shop, which is located just up the street at the corner of Peachtree Center and Decatur Street on the Decatur Street entrance. Best Way Copy Shop, they bring you Georgia State sports on commercials if you listen on the radio. Uh, and it's a nice family business. And all the other photocopy shops went out of business. So uh, you won't have to worry about going to the wrong copy shop. Here you go, sir. Um, the cost of that and the other textbook is about $35 each. If you, wanna, if you have a friend in the class and you want to split the cost, right. you can share the cost that way. Um, having access to both books is required. Uh, $70 is less than the average for Georgia State, which is over $100 per class. Not, I'm not saying it's a little amount of money, but it is less than most classes. So. Uh, I do encourage you to do the reading as much as you can before the class because that will enable us to have more informed discussions and debates. But if you can't read it before the class and you're one sort of person who understands the reading better after it's been discussed, then you can read it after class or you can try a combination of the two depending on how your schedule permits you to, to, to be prepared. Pardon me? Well, you'll notice on page, first page, required books. The first one is CQ Researcher. You, that you can get in any of the three bookstores. Park Place Books is the closest to the Best Way Copy Shop. It's just across the street. So if you want to save yourself time, just walk up the street, and you can get both very quickly. I'm missing a page. Oh my goodness, I'll have to give you the last page the next class. I'm sorry about that. Do you have a, one with the last page? Okay. Um, anyway, we're at the last page doesn't give you any information you need right away, but I will give you new copies of the syllabus on Thursday. Um, two announcements. First, 
the last page is available on ULEARN now, uh, in case you really are dying to know um, what the last couple assignments are, which are just from the CQ researcher. Thanks for that. Uh, secondly, we have a guest speaker on Thursday. Thanks. Uh, and the guest, the speaker, is described on January 20th section on the second page of the syllabus there. Uh, you'll, you'll meet Dr. Jonathan Fine. I haven't met him before. And he'll be talking about reading roughly related to the third chapter of the CQ Researcher book entitled Prosecu Prosecuting Terrorists. And I will give a lecture after, we after I introduce the course now um, from that chapter because he'll be covering different topics on Thursday. And uh, that will introduce you both to the chapter and to Thursday's guest lecture. So please do come. And you know, I, I think, depending on what the speaker prefers, you'll either be able to ask questions at the end of the lecture or possibly even during the lecture. Uh, that he will be talking about how democracies uh, approach the issue of counterterrorism, obviously a big problem not only in the United States but around the world. As an Israeli, he'll talk to you about how he or and or Israel sees the problem vis-a-vis -vis Palestinian terrorism. And I suspect he'll also give you the, a perspective on how the Palestinians see Israeli terror. Are you going to record that one as well? Yeah. yeah. If you can't come, you can still listen. But I, I, I really would like you to come if you can, just because active questioning from the class, plus the general argument about you get more out of it if you're right there and giving your undivided attention. If you're driving and listening to the podcast, you know, you can't listen quite as carefully and take notes and so forth. Yes? Is that going to be in the Yes. Okay. Um, there are three requirements for your grade, a midterm, a final, and you have a choice of a paper or a video. We're just talking about the two tests. The midterm will be in the first half of the class. The final will be in the second half of the class. Uh, the first half of the class will be weighted more towards this uh, readings from the binder uh, on Europe. We'll finish them about 60% or two-thirds of the way into the class. And then the second half and your final exam will be <coughs> much more geared towards the CQ researcher book. The midterm is scheduled more than halfway through the course for two reasons. The first is we missed the first week of classes. We're covering the same amount of material because the provost sent an email over the weekend saying, do not reduce the number of requirements. So essentially, you're doing 15 weeks worth of work in 14 weeks. It's not as bad as a summer class where you're doing 15 weeks and seven, or if you're doing a May semester, it's 15 weeks and three. Um, but it's slightly faster paced than usual. Um, not, at, not requiring any extra class sessions, but uh, you will be responsible for covering the same amount of work. Second reason is I'll be out of town, and it just makes more sense for me to schedule the midterm when I'm not here. The midterm will be on ULEARN. It'll be a multiple choice test. You'll get it a week in advance, and you have a week to take it. You can take it as many times as you like. Your highest score will count. You will not know your score at the end of each test, though. Most students like that kind of test because you, you can take it at your own pace. You can go back to the reading and try to find the answers. I view it as a good learning experience. Um, however, it's not everybody's cup of tea. Is there a time limit? Pardon me? Is there a, time limit? a vague one, like two hours. But since you can take it as many times as you want yeah. and you have the mm -hmm. questions in advance, it's not a huge problem. Most people print out the questions the first time they take it, and then they go 
try to figure out what the answers are. Um, for Thursday, do we need to have the third chapter right in here? Uh, <coughs> we probably will never go over the third chapter beyond what I described today. Uh, I also added some supplemental readings just because his topic is slightly different than the topic of the chapter. His topic is democracy and counterterrorism. And the chapter uh, by Kenneth Jost, I think, is the author of that article, is called Prosecuting Terrorists which includes not only a discussion of how do you prosecute terrorists, but what happens uh, if, you, if a government gets the evidence in a way that might contravene the law. So it's just as much about the torture question as the question of how do you identify a terrorist? How do you do an interrogation and get good information? Um, the paper and the video if you do the paper, you have to pick any topic, but any topic from the Best Way Binder reading. And the topic that you pick must begin with W-H-Y, why, a why question. Why a why question? Because I'm teaching you analytical critical thinking, so you're trying to answer with the question, question why with the answer because. So I want you to explain. Explain is the social science term for identifying the causes of a phenomenon. You can do any question you want so long as I approve it, but I require that you begin the question with the word why. And you have to be able to answer it based on the readings in that best way binder. If you choose a video, you're strongly urged to um, take the various classes that are free at the Digital Aquarium if you don't already know how to use a camera or edit video. You can use video off of uh, YouTube or other places, websites, but you must cite them. <coughs> Second, you are required to do some interviews for your video, on-camera interviews, so that you get some experience doing that. Maybe you'll do your own, and you're required to do your own narration, unless you're, you're importing audio, but you have to narrate, introduce, describe where you're going, and so forth. And finally, you would have to upload it to YouTube. Um, that's just to show that you've done a video that's compatible with YouTube because I want to encourage you to post things on YouTube. It's a great skill for employers, or at least for certain kinds of nonprofit, government, advocacy work, analytical work in a think tank. Or it may be fun because that way you can use a skill to take good things, not bad things. Uh, don't want any bad motivations for putting things on YouTube, but you know, things that may be educational or entertaining without hurting anybody. I don't want anyone to hurt anybody, because <laughs> it's no joke, as you know. Um, so uh, because you're doing interviews, I don't restrict videos <coughs> to the, the European institutional readings in the Best Way Binder. For the video, you're not even You need to pick a topic that comes out of either CQ Researcher or the Best Way video, but you're not Best Way Binder readings on Europe. But you're not restricted just the best way. You can pick any, of the, any one of the 16 topics in the CQ Researcher. And you have to show that you've read that chapter uh, to inform your presentation of the video. So I think video skills are important. If you have them already, you may want to perfect them. If you ha don't have them already, um, you'll need to take some of these seminars, which are free at the Digital Aquarium. I've never taken them. but. I've, lots of students have done this in the past and have enjoyed it. However, I'm not spending a lot of class time 
on how to do a video. You're going to have to learn that on your own if you don't know it. And I, I, I'll get your grade will be based on what I download from YouTube, from yeah YouTube. So uh, the digital aquarium will answer a lot of your questions, like including how do I upload this to YouTube and so <laughs> forth. But remember, if you don't get it on YouTube, you don't get a grade on the assignment. So I would do some test runs along the way, just make sure that you know for some reason whatever computer you're using I assume if you use the computers in the digital aquarium they will upload fine because the consultant on duty will show you how to do it so that is a fallback position but a word to the wise don't tell me you know you did it and then you couldn't upload it <coughs> uh, time permitting will and assuming we've got the capacity which I think we do we can Anyone who wants to, you're not required to, but anyone who wants to show their YouTube video is welcome to show it to the class. And we can post them all on either iTunes U as well, where these podcasts will be located for this class. Uh, or, and that comes up on student work, or you can provide the link for the YouTube, if you choose to do so. You can give me the link privately if you don't want your classmates to know your, what your YouTube is. But if you want to post it, uh, you can just post it on the bulletin board of the YouTube of YouTube. And if you want to, you know, inform the class of other cool videos you've seen related to the class or any articles, use the bulletin board to post, to, to debate, to ask questions about clarification on materials, discuss the quest. And uh, your topic for your paper and your, or your topic for your video must be posted on YouTube and I must approve it by the due date, which is sometime in March. So by early March, whatever date is on the syllabus here, uh, March 8th is the deadline for posting your topic. You are encouraged to post outlines for papers or how you're thinking about your video on you t on ULEARN. So I can give you my feedback. In general, unless you've got a compelling reason, I insist that you put it on ULEARN because then everyone else in the class can learn from the feedback that I'm giving you personally. And they can, and you can, as another person, can think, okay, that's what he wants. I don't want anybody to say, I didn't understand what you really want. Because if you go through the bulletin board and look at my comments, you'll be able to see there, as well as what I say in class, about what I want, which I believe is not idiosyncratic or arbitrary, is designed to improve your skills. And we'll go into depth during the class about an outline for a paper or videos. Anybody have a rough idea whether you want to do a paper as opposed to a video? Raise your hand. Okay, about half. How many people think they'd like to do a video? About half, maybe slightly less, 30, a third. Okay, well that's fine. That's a great distribution. As again, if you're going to do a video and you don't know how to, to edit video and use a camera, uh, etc., then go online to uh, Georgia State's website, type in Digital Aquarium or go to the index and look for Digital Aquarium and you'll see the calendar of classes. There are classes every day, a couple classes every day on a whole lot of neat stuff that have nothing to do with doing a video as well. Uh, that's one of the things that your student activity pays for. You get free use of cameras. Uh, I think 24 or 48 hours at a time. Uh, the camera equipment is um, professional grade so they say um, and although I, I understand that the new iPhone 4 is good enough for CNN on you know live because <laughs> I have a friend at CNN who told me they gave everybody including producers not just 
cameraman and persons, you know, if you see something worthwhile, use your iPhone because that's good enough quality to put on CNN. I'm not being paid to say this by <laughs> Apple. Um, and I don't use smartphones. I barely use a cell phone. Um, but that's just me. I, but I see the value for other people to use them. I just don't do it because I have enough work to do as it is. I can't be distracted by too many gadgets. Um, and I find a laptop and a computer work just fine for all this stuff. So, And I spend too much time surfing the web as it is, so why should I be able to surf even more? Mm -hmm. But that's my theory about these things. So you put your iPod to good use. Yep. <laughs> Pink one, too. <laughs> okay, so um, as far as getting the podcasts, you log on. There's a, a link on both the Georgia State webpage or on the class homepage of ULEARN. Do your academic don't do the public login for this class because it's not on the public site. It's only only members of this class. I believe only people who are taking this class can get access to these podcasts. So, you just you know your your campus ID and password will take you right there. Um, and do check that out for ULEARN as well because your midterm and final will be on ULEARN. And I don't want anyone to tell me they couldn't log on to take the test. So if you're not, please send me an email if you're not getting on. Um, it, in the past, people who registered late don't seem to get on to the ULEARN registry. So I have to add you up, add you into that one person at a time for people who register late. Anybody register late? Okay, so you three may or may not be on ULEARN. So you want to double check that before you forget. I think you're already on the Okay. Well, maybe they've corrected that problem. In the past, they had used to have that problem. Um, so that's the, cl the, the situation. You're, each of those three grades, your project and the midterm and the final count one-third. If you um, participate a lot and come to class most of the time, you can only, your grade can only go up. If I know that you haven't been here 20% of the time or more, your grade will go down. And if you're, you're not here 50% of the time, your grade will go down more. Now, I will excuse absences, but you know, I basically, you know, you go, in practice, it's well above 20% before I start to kind of penalize you, just so there's no question as to whether you're on the border or not. So in practice, it's more like 30% of the time or more. You miss 30 a third of the classes, you're going to get docked. Um, and that's just to encourage everyone to participate, to learn, and not get frustrated by the materials because you just haven't invested in uh, the class. And you know, I know Georgia State attendance, you know, it's sort of high in the beginning and it goes down and then sort of a quarter of the way to go in the class, it's at its lowest point, and then suddenly everyone shows up again in the last class. I'd like to think that you know you're looking forward to the class and you want to come and that it's a fun class and it's you know but I and, and and part of it's a reflection of me, but part of it's a reflection of you. To the extent that it's a reflection of me, please give me your feedback early on. Tell me what you don't like or do or do like. You can do it if you feel like it on you learn. If you prefer to do it privately, that's fine too. I won't hold it against you. I'll, I'm grateful. 
One thing that may or may not come up, but I want to just be clear. On student comments in the past, I'm often enough, uh, it, comment, the comment is given that I cut students off on their answer. I don't consciously do that. But if I do that, A, I apologize in advance. And B, I think the reason I do it is not because I want to humiliate you um, or because I don't respect you. It's because we've got to cover the material that's assigned. Um, and I think it's the sort of thing that most people don't think, but a couple of people don't get the answer, finish their answer, and they feel like they've been interrupted. I'll try to avoid that. And please let me know if I'm doing that, because I want to improve. But I also think that one reason I'm, the only reason I think that I do it is not because I disagree with you or I want to humiliate you. It's just because there's only 75 minutes in the class, and there's the material that we have to cover. Um, but do let me know in particular about that. Uh, if there's anything else that you don't like, let me know. Material is you know, accessible. But it's, it's not easy. It's designed to improve your reading skills and your writing skills. So no pain, no gain. You, you do have to experience not pain in the sense of certainly physical or even mental pain or anguish. But rather, you know, you have to give it time. You have to put in effort. You might have to turn off distractions while you're doing your reading. And above all else, you need to do the reading. If you do the reading, your reading skills will improve. <coughs> it's not too late. Uh, you know, I, I do know that uh, kids don't do reading because my relatively intelligent son never reads anything. And he's a ninth grader. If you're listening, son. <laughs> <laughs> Ma'am, here's your syllabus. So, you know, I used to give these lectures, you know, you, you need to have already spent a minimum of an hour a day of undivided attention reading serious material to be even good enough to be a reader as a freshman. And I'm, I'm sorry to say, I don't think 90% of Georgia State students have done that, even in the last two years before they get here. And I'm not counting, like my wife says, yeah, but he reads stuff online, and he reads this. That's not the kind of reading skill you need to get through long articles. Long articles requires you to concentrate not in fragments of ideas, but the whole development idea from beginning to end. It requires you not to forget what you read 30 minutes ago. It requires you to think, what's the most important thing being said here? It requires you not to daydream while you read. And when you get to be a better reader, like when you get to be a better ice skater, a, be a better juggler, a better quarterback, a better anything, the better you get at it, the easier it is to do, and the more fun it becomes, and the more you get out of it. So if your reading skills are not up to what they should be, the good news is you'll experience improvement faster than your classmates, and you'll get to that point of that eureka moment, that aha moment, that moment where it really becomes fun, um, maybe not as soon as the other classmates will, but you'll get closer to it faster. If you have read an hour a day of serious reading, 
let's say the two years before you came to Georgia State, seven days a week, then you're there. I think that's all it takes. But I dare say, you know, if you watch NFL football all day Sunday and other stuff, you may be sophisticated, you may be streetwise, you may be cool, all the things that I'm not. But the one thing you won't be is a really good reader. And, you know, this is an investment in you. Do it for yourself. Do it for the taxpayers. Do it to make yourself a better person. And I mean that. But also someone who can contribute more, whether it's in business, government, nonprofit work. Uh, because the better your reading and writing skills in modern society, uh, certainly the more you'll be able to contribute in your jobs, but also it'll make you more thoughtful people. Part of what I think, and I may be wrong, you may disagree with me, part of what I think is part of being an ethical person or a moral person, which comes partly from religious ethics and also how you're raised, but also is the ability to think thoughtfully, the ability to have conversations where you listen to the other person, the ability to have discussions where you're not just trying to get debating points, but you actually have a conversation because you're actually listening to what the person says and you're responding to what the person says and you're acknowledging what the other person is saying by responding, even if you disagree, to the arguments that the other person has made. And when you're reading, you're kind of doing that with the author. Saying, I don't, I don't agree with you, but I see what you're saying because I've read it and here's where I think you're, you're convincing and here's where I think you're not convincing and here's why. And I'll concede this point to you. I hope in this class when we have debates, while you, you know, we'll line up on different sides of the issue, I hope you will say to the other person, you know, on that point I do, I do concede. I think you're right there. But here's where I disagree with you. Now, I am really worried, and I say this perhaps a little too dramatically, but I am really worried by the fact that A, most people don't get their news from the newspaper anymore. B, my generation got their news from TV news. But C, now most people are getting what passes as news from narrow-casted shows that pre pre preach to the converted, who are only hearing the same arguments over and over. And what you get, <coughs> and this has nothing to do with the shooting in Tucson, but what you do get is a political climate of debate where there's no give and take and where the politicians don't, are less willing to compromise and put the broader interests of the society first because they're more interested in keeping their base of voters, which is all you need to get elected because we have polarized politics that turn people off who don't want to go out and vote. So to win elections, all you got to do is preach to the converted and talk and think like they do rather than getting rewarded by the voters for getting a bill passed through Congress that will benefit everybody. And meanwhile, back in civil society where you and I, who are not full-time politicians, unless we have some in the room, occasionally we do, which is always interesting. I had the boxing commissioner of Georgia last summer in my class. and We had lots of fun. Um, and uh, in any event, you know, 
there is a tendency to the extent that people are interested in politics at all that it just becomes about scoring points for your point of view rather than having conversations about how we can understand this situation that we're in. And the only, it's, there are many reasons why this has occurred. It's not just technological change. It has a lot to do with the electoral system, uh, which has come about, um, and TV commercials and blogs and all on. And, you know, I don't know, disintegration of families may have something to do with it as well. People are less interested in politics also. You know, people tend to be interested in politics or not. I was going to say that. And, and one was, was one thing. And, and, and among those who are interested in politics, they're interested in different questions. I substitute teach high school. And it's often just appalling. There's absolute indifference that you see. There's just no, they're completely plugged into their music and their entertainment. But there's not a bit of interest in politics or concern about anything having to do with the public, sort of public space. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you get one or two people. But Occasionally, but it's very rare. And, you know, no one stands up, and, you know. You don't mean literally, they just. Flag. No, literally, they do the Pledge of Allegiance, and maybe get one student will stand. And oh, you have them for the whole day, same group? Well, no, but we'll have each day, we'll have the first period of class, we'll have anybody. So you're teaching high school then? That's right. Okay. Where did you teach high school? South Gwinnett High School. Don't anything about it except I know Gwinnett schools are large. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, my own children were, especially my son, was quite interested in politics early on, and then somewhere, that all became a you know became an, I'm sorry to say, you know much more a creation of mass media. Um, that's our culture, and that's how it is. But hopefully, in this classroom anyway, you're here because you want to be, because you're interested in global issues. Uh, and not just because it's a required, not a required class, but one of a, a menu of required classes. Um, because you know, I really hope that you know this is an experience that you'll value, and maybe that you'll even remember and, and think back upon. Um, but again, you know, I, it's a partnership between me and you, both as a class and and each of you as an individual. I depend on you to put the work in. If you put in the work in, I will improve your analytical skills, your writing and reading skills, uh, and hopefully not only a smarter person, but a more ethical person. Anyway, that's my goal. That's what I said in the syllabus when I said to teach you critical thinking and learning and writing skills. That's, that's, that's the immediate skill, but the consequence of that will not only make you a better employee or entrepreneur, but a better person. You'll, you'll, you'll let me know whether I, that was unrealistic or not uh, at the end of the semester. Any other questions about how the course is organized? So although the syllabus is a lot of boilerplate on there about plagiarism and deviations from the syllabus, I generally just keep to the syllabus. If we don't cover everything, uh, I just assume, well, that's the time that was allotted, and we need to move on next class. So barring something that's un unpredictable, what you have here is, is the plan, or what, what's on you learn on the syllabus is the plan. And um, if you miss the class, you, know, you can still listen to the podcast. All right, then, in the remaining time that we have, which is roughly a half an hour, I'm going to give you a discussion on prosecuting terrorists, which is the third chapter in the book. And 
on Thursday's class, which was the guest lecture, uh, it will be much more the theme of democracy and counterterrorism. And I'll leave our guest, assuming the guest speaker shows up and there's no complications, let him um, make the presentation that he does. And you know, if he does take questions during the talk, especially for clarification, by all means ask questions during the talk. But if you want to challenge him, disagree, ask him to elaborate, or if you agree with the speaker, all those are fine, just as long as you're polite and civil. All right, prosecuting terrorists. That's been a hot topic, as it were, since 9-11. Uh, but we had, in the United States and in the world, some fairly clear rules about prosecuting terrorists that existed uh, very clearly since 1949. In 1949, after World War II, most of the countries of the world, which then did not include all the post-colonial states uh, that emerged from Asia and Africa during the period of decolonization, the 1949 Geneva Conventions, which for situations of armed conflict had a common Article 3 for the four conventions. Uh, the four conventions were for land warfare, naval warfare, rights of prisoners of war, and rules of occupation. Article 3 was identical for all four of those and was designed to prevent the oversights before World War II where soldiers had rights, but civilians weren't given any rights. So Hitler thought, I could just murder all these civilians because there was no treaty that banned it. And one of the defenses of the Nuremberg Military Tribunal was this prosecution by the allies of the Nazis amounted to ex post facto justice. That is, they used a law that didn't exist, and therefore that shouldn't be allowed. In fact, there was no very explicit law for crimes against humanity, for example. But it was argued at the time, to some people's satisfaction and not to other people's satisfaction, that it wasn't an ex post facto law because natural law banned murdering civilians under detention who were innocent or who were not given a trial. And again, some people say, what is this natural law? I don't believe in natural law. I only believe in positive law. Hard law created by treaties, created by legislatures, and so forth. A common Article 3 made very clear, certainly in internal civil wars, if not in international wars, in situations of armed conflict, civilians had the right to life and could not be exposed to outrages to human dignity. Now, I'll focus on the United States just because it's more familiar, but um, the United States accepted Common Article 3 as well as the rest of the Geneva Conventions. And the United States was a prime mover in what became known as the Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel and Human or Degrading Treatment or Punishment, which was promulgated in 1984 and ratified by the U.S. Senate in 1994, which also had enabling legislation, the anti-torture statute, which criminalized torture in the United States for federal people. And most states also torture is a crime. Now, after 9-11, it was assumed that uh, something went wrong in the intelligence apparatus 
And we need to, it was assumed by the Bush administration that traditional techniques that had been used in the American Revolution when George Washington has said, uh, we don't do these kinds of things that the British do, or in the Civil War when Abraham Lincoln had promulgated the Lieber Code, which banned outrages to human dignity by soldiers. Now, that wasn't obeyed, and it wasn't enforced against General Sherman, but at least it was illegal and criminal. Uh, so that was, the, that was the exception. That also was much more like a counterinsurgency, a civil war like the wars against terrorism than the more conventional wars where torture was not used by the US in great numbers like World War I, World War II, or the American Revolution. Um, so between the Convention Against Torture and the Geneva Conventions among a number of international documents, including the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, torture has been clearly illegal by those treaties, if you believe in positive law, if not by either natural law or customary international law, which you don't have to know about in this class, uh, since just after World War II. But after 9-11, the lawyers for the Bush administration said, terrorists are not covered by common Article Three because they're not lawful combatants. And the Bush administration invented a term called unlawful enemy combatants to describe terrorists. Because the Geneva Conventions do say a lawful combatant entitled the prisoner of war status has to carry arms openly, wear a uniform, have a symbol or insignia or badge, and so forth. However, the Geneva Conventions also say even everyone, by implication including unlawful combatants, are required to be treated humanely, whatever that means. Uh, that presumably means not being treated inhumanly, as is forbidden by the Convention Against Torture. So, we have a conflict between the perceived national security needs of the United States to get information by interrogating terrorists and getting them to talk, break, and turn by using coercive techniques that some people would think are inhumane or outrages against human dignity. And others might even go further and say uh, constitute torture. Yes, sir, someone had a hand up? Okay. Feel free to ask me questions at any time, please. Convention Against Torture. I have a question. Yes. To what extent these um, rules um, represent sort of lip service that's been given by these governments over time and actual practical application? In other words, one could argue that the Bush administration was simply being honest. Yeah, you, you could say that. Um, all of these treaties and laws are honored in the breach that uh, we just want to pay lip service to being for all the right things as a, as a cover. But what we really do in secret, nobody's supposed to know about except that when soldiers print <coughs> photographs at Abu Ghraib and it gets out, then the you-know-what hits the fan. Um, and had it not been for those photographs, they would all, there would be the suspicion, they would be, the news would have dribbled out, but you know, you, Confucius said a picture is worth a thousand words, so each one of those pictures, and I assume all of you have seen them, at least some of them, and there are lots of other pictures that President Obama decided not to release. 
Um, your question is, to what extent this was done consciously? That's my question, is to what extent it was done. That there's a tacit, maybe a tacit understanding that these things will be done, but that we'll give lip service to these ideals. It seems like there's always a tension between the ideals that we profess as a society and what we actually <coughs> do on the sort of real politics setting. And, uh, well, I guess the answer is, who is we? Is it the government? Is it the people? Is it the United States or it's another country? Uh, is it now or is it in the future? Um, we may well agree that this is lip service, but we still want to be moving in that direction. Sure. Um, not every country in the world practices torture. Apparently, the UN Rapporteur on Torture, outgoing Manfred Novik, said Denmark doesn't do torture. Roughly half the countries use torture frequently, and the rest infrequently. And most societies use torture when they're under stress. To get the information, maybe, or maybe just to show that they're powerful, or maybe to deter, or maybe revenge. Uh, maybe in good faith, maybe in bad faith. The Bush administration denied using torture. They defined torture initially in 2002 in a memo from the Office of Legal Counsel as anything short of organ failure or death is not torture. Mm -hmm. The Bush administration defined it? The Bush administration uh, Office of Legal Counsel gave that legal guidance, which was used to develop the interrogation protocols used at places like Bagram Air Base, Guantanamo. Etc. The Bush administration abandoned that criterion in the second term because when it was leaked, it was so much of a scandal that um, that would permit beatings, that would permit uh, isolation for months at a time, that would, you know, no exercise, uh, screaming at people, playing loud rock music, waterboarding, anything that doesn't leave marks that you know, could cause severe psychological long-term <laughs> damage, but doesn't result in organ failure or death is not torture. Um, now, this is not to say the Bush administration thought it would be used very often, but a lot of techniques were used. Yes, sir, you had a question. Well, not enough for the recording. <laughs> it seems to me that the, the bottom line is it's torturing one individual worth the information that can say Well, that's one way to look at it. Um, in ethics, we call those consequentialist arguments what some of you may have heard of the philosophy of utilitarianism. Anyone have heard that? J.S. Mill and so forth. There's a Kantian alternative. Immanuel Kant uh, just basically said, some things are right and some things are wrong. And you don't do them because they're wrong. The consequentialist approach, which still asks an empirical question, is it providing the information or not? And what are the other consequences? Providing recruits for Al-Qaeda as a result? So are we winning the battle and losing the war? Um, but there is a very important empirical question, which you get different answers for as to how much information you get, some so-called actionable intelligence. So my answer is, 
that's how a lot of people look at it. Other people say you just don't do certain things in civilized society. There's a question over here, and then you. Was it? Okay. Yeah. I was just going to say, wasn't technically Guantanamo not on U.S. soil, so technically the laws didn't apply? I mean, I guess that was a technicality, but I mean. That was the argument for why the Geneva Conventions and the U.S. Constitution did not apply until the 2006 Hamdan decision, which said that Common Article 3 does apply. Because that was considered to be part of customary international law and therefore applicable across the globe. Geneva Convention requires an independent authority to establish whether or not someone is an unlawful combatant, if there's any doubt as to whether someone is an unlawful combatant or a lawful combatant entitled to prisoner of war status. The Bush administration said that initially these are all, uh, President Bush said they're all killers, the worst of the worst. Secretary Rumsfeld said we follow the Geneva Conventions for the most part. Of the 850 approximate detainees at Guantanamo, which is only one of the sites where these people were kept, more than 600 have been returned. You can infer that means that they made a mistake in 600 out of 850 cases. They were returned where? Uh, in most cases to their home country. There were hundreds of cases of completely innocent people <laughs> who got picked up because somebody got a $10,000 reward for it. And, you know, we're not talking about people who are offering up their neighbors and being bad people. We're talking about people who are offering up somebody they capture in the middle of nowhere who you don't know and nobody will know that you've got $10,000 for turning this person over just because the person's a foreigner. And basically, anyone who was not an Afghan person was looked on as being likely to have been a jihadist. Uh, the U.S. got fooled by its own rhetoric. Um, is this a significant question? I mean, do we care? I have friends who say they kept us safe. They felt like they had to do whatever they had to do. My answer to that is, let's assume that's true and that these things paid off, but we can't call ourselves a democracy or a republic based on law. And the theory is that democracies have to fight terrorism. And you know, I want you to ask our guest speaker if he agrees, with one hand tied behind your back, not only for Kantian reasons, but actually for consequentialist reasons. That is, we are actually stronger if we can keep ourselves as democracy. Because as a democracy, people will look to us with admiration rather than contempt. That's the argument, anyway. The opposite argument is a realist argument says, in war, stuff happens. You got to do a lot of ugly things to get results. And generally, everyone does it. And if we don't do it, we'll be worse off for it because they're doing it. We can't fight with one hand tied behind our back if they don't fight with one hand tied behind their back. Other questions? Yeah. Who um, is the independent authority, I guess, that you were talking about that determines who is a terrorist versus what? Well, the United States didn't have anyone who was independent initially. The Army decided for itself whether somebody was a terrorist. And there were a series of court cases, Rasul, Hamdi, and Hamdan, by the U.S. Supreme Court, which con con continued to say what you've done is not independent enough. 
Finally, in Hamdan, they said, look, common Article 3 says you need to have an independent authority. That means somebody uh, who was not involved with the unit who captured you. But they still could be within the military. I don't know the exact. Each case made it what, you know, they typically said, propose something else. What you got isn't good enough. And they would propose something else, and they would propose something else. There's another case after Hamdan, 2008, Bumi which said the Military Commissions Act of 2006, which was enacted in response to Hamdan in 2006, wasn't good enough. So, you know, most people who are international lawyers would say it's got to be somebody outside the military, preferably a judge, because that's what happens in ordinary criminal law. But the military says this is not a criminal justice matter. This is a military matter involving the law of armed conflict. You know, the United States and Israel treat all of this as armed conflict law. And then we interpret armed conflict law the way we want to. Most countries of the world still even regard the fight of counterterrorism as essentially a policing matter involving civil liberties protections entitled to anyone who is arrested like anyone else. Others say, look, a terrorist can get a nuclear weapon. They can blow up the world. We can't be giving out rights of criminals. Criminals may have rights, but terrorists don't. Um, reasonable people disagree. Reasonable people might say, OK, you can't have all the criminal justice protections, but you can't do certain things. Like, you just can't be rounding up people in Afghanistan and paying people $10,000 a piece to hand them over and assume that they're all terrorists. What happened was these guys got taken to Guantanamo. A number of them broke under the stress of torture and turned and started turning in their comrades just because they didn't want to be tortured anymore, because everybody got tortured. Aside from the harm done to the people whose lives were ruined, if a minimum for that period of time, we got actionable intelligence that said that Saddam was recruiting al-Qaeda to come and get trained in weapons of mass destruction. That argument was used by Secretary of State Powell before the UN Security Council, and that was the main argument we used at the UN Security Council to declare war in Iraq. And that person who was tortured, Sheikh al-Libi, was sent back to Libya knowing that he was innocent and just said what they wanted to hear, and he has tuberculosis. Now, maybe he wasn't deliberately given tuberculosis. But you know, when you're tortured, your resistance to disease goes down. And in those cells in Guantanamo, there are scorpions and other things in your cell, and you're stuck there. And you know, it may be that these conditions that we said were not torture led to a lot of people dying or contracting terrible diseases. And in any event, a consequentialist argument would ask the question anyway, are we recruiting more terrorists by doing this? Or are we getting more actionable intelligence? I think what they plan, giving my personal opinion, is this would all be done in relative secrecy. But as soon as the Abu Ghraib photos got out there, there were photos you know, that even the Israelis don't do the kinds of things we did to the Palestinians. Because the Israelis have to make peace with the Palestinians someday. But we thought we would defeat them. Anyway, uh, that's 
not meant to preach or to give you, say, I'm not saying I'm right, I'm not wrong. These are uh, problems that are really dilemmas. Um, before I go on, I'd love to hear your thoughts and arguments on this as I presented it. Is it worth it? Uh, do people we think might be terrorists, even when we're wrong, have rights? If rights, how many? Yeah. One of the issues that I've seen personally uh, in Afghanistan is that As being a soldier? Yes. Um, those people have a very, very, very long memory. You can sit down with them in a month's time and say, this is going to happen, or we're going to do this, and they're going to bring up something that happened 10 years ago, 15 years ago. They're still bringing up stuff that the British did 100 years ago that is all oral history that, you know, well, what about this? Well, this is what happened in this. Like, you know, how are you going to deal with this? And to say that just because we went in there, destroyed them, took some people, and tortured them, they, they remember that stuff. You know, the fact that we have taken their religious leaders, regardless of whether we see them as terrorists or religious leaders, and tortured them and done this stuff to them, they'll never forget those things. So from a consequentialist point of view, even if we got actionable intelligence in the short run, the long-term blowback may haunt us. Um, thank you for that. Anybody else? Um, here's what I think. I think primarily you need to define what a terrorist is. Primarily, and they need to have a um, they need to have a, def a def functional definition that everybody can understand. Going from that, they need an, an exemplary figure to fit the the, the mode of, of of what that terrorist is. Now, once you have that in place, you can start to assess these others based upon what you've set up, the, the definition. If you have the information. If, if you do, but if you, had, if you had a definition that was functional for us that we could agree upon, then once you're assessing these others, it's sort of like a screening. For instance, if you have a medical office and you have people coming in and um, some people may allude to the fact that they're on drugs and that they're addicted to their pills. Some of them may, but some of them may not be. Some, some, some people may be risk misrepresented misrepresented as on drugs, although they're not. But if you have a system set up to screen them, you can you can't you can't stop some people from being tortured when they shouldn't be, but you can lower the number instead of just uh, relying on he say, she say, she say to torture this other person based upon what, you know, somebody who is a terrorist based on a reference that they gave. I don't so think the problem, if I may with respect, disagree with you, uh, was not having a definition of terrorism. We said anyone who is al-Qaeda or Taliban. Is that right? Mm -hmm. right. So, so, but what is that? How do you know? They don't wear uniforms half the time, three quarters of the time? Uh, never, most of the time. Um, and a lot of times what had, what had happened was when the Taliban came in, they took a lot of the men and boys and forced them into fighting or, or killed them and killed their families. So it, it forced conscription, right? Yeah, it was interesting that when they first, it, during the first, you know, Afghanistan, you know, the, the northern tribes that were fighting, those guys would switch back and forth all the time. Whenever they would get captured, you know, they'd drop their guns and surrender, and you know, whoever, whichever the northern alliance commander was in charge, they would swear allegiance to him, give him a gun, and they'd go back out and fight the Taliban, who they were just on their side. And these, these people... They got a gun at your head, 
and they're watching you all the time, you switch sides. Because they'll shoot you on a spot. So, so one man's terrorist, another man's freedom fighter. I mean, where's Or both. Um, anybody else? Yeah. I, um, you know, like, there's a huge ethical issue with just, like, saying in your own country, like, every person who's born is free regardless of being black or white or female or male, but then ignoring those when you go to out of your, your borders and going into another country and just plucking people off the street and torturing them. Um, I think ethically, if they were going to do something like that again or even consider torture as, like, an okay, you know, tool to gain information, they need to have extensive, like, evidence that they are indeed a terrorist. Well, that's the Geneva Conventions. You have to have an independent person decide that more likely than not the person is a terrorist. Um, we didn't do that. <coughs> we took the word of the people who handed them over. So we just blatantly ignored that. Who's next? So we have no obligation to how we do it, as long as we're doing something good overall? No, but I think that, I think if you focus on the negative, you know, I mean, we still have to protect our country, too, and, and, and maybe... At what cost? Right, there sh I'm saying there should be more obligations as far as, you know, for us to, to the people that we imprison and that we torture, but, I mean, I think, I think it's something we kind of had to learn from. I mean, I guess it's just now that that's laws are put in place, it, it won't happen again. But the laws you know? were in place before we went there. But I mean, not I mean, there were technicalities. That, that, that there were there were holes. There were loopholes. That's how it. The loopholes, with respect, were, were created by the the unprecedented interpretation by the Office of Legal Counsel in 2002. Before that, there was no torture whatsoever under any conditions. Period. That was U.S. law, and that was international law. In fact, we never tortured really anybody as a country in World War I or World War II. Started in Vietnam. It started when the CIA took over from the military. The military has a self-interested reason not to practice torture. And the reason is very clear. If you torture, what goes around comes around. If you're in the CIA, you're not part of an army around the world. If you torture, the CIA employees are not going to get tortured in large numbers. Um, but I do agree with your point that it's hard to fight a war in a country you don't know well and not make mistakes and necessarily feel bad about that. I mean, because to some extent, they did start it. They did start it. The question is, what are our responsibilities and obligations ethically and legally when we hit back? 
All right, I guess we're out of time. See you on Thursday here uh, for the guest speaker.